Hello, baseball fans. Welcome to Sully Baseball. This is the podcast where we talk about baseball 52 weeks out of the year. There is no offseason. And I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I'm recording this on the 12th day of December, 2017. And I am standing next to the Jackie Robinson statue outside of the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California. You know, there's a wonderful monument to Jackie Robinson and his brother Mac Robinson, who was a Olympian in the 1936 Olympics, the same Olympics that gave us Jesse Owens and his uh, victories and heroism there. Uh, that's outside of the City Hall in Pasadena. It's two gigantic busts. It's their heads. One of Jackie, one of Mac. Uh, now there's this image of Jackie Robinson as a football player, where he was a star football player and a star track, uh, track star at UCLA. And UCLA plays their home football games here at the Rose Bowl. And Jackie Robinson, while born in Georgia, did most of his growing up in Pasadena. And, you know, much like my kids, was born on the eastern part of the country and, and did most of the growing up in Pasadena. So... I didn't know this statue existed here. I was here for another reason. I was here for a reason that had nothing to do with the Sully Baseball podcast. But I've, since I was near the Rose Bowl, I figured, oh, why don't I talk about some stuff that was on my mind? And as I was walking up, I noticed this, this statue to Jackie Robinson. And again, showing the fragile history that is reality. That Jackie Robinson could very well have been one of the great figures in the NFL. And his, he was a bigger, much bigger football star than he was a baseball star, certainly in his days at UCLA. And remember that Jackie was not the first person who people thought was going to break the color barrier. The, the general consensus was Roy Campanella, who was a much bigger star in the Negro Leagues than Jackie Robinson was, had an Italian name would have a mask over his face because he was a catcher and was the was of mixed race he had a, a, a white father and a black mother that would have been an easier sell than Jackie uh, but and you know of course there were other big stars obviously Satchel Paige was the single biggest draw in the Negro Leagues and he seemed like a absolute perfect fit to break the color barrier but he wasn't Jackie wasn't even the first person that Branch Rickey approached. Monty Irvin was. Monty Irvin was given the chance to break the color barrier. Monty Irvin was the was a again like like Campanella a much bigger star and a much more polished player than Jackie Robinson was. And we all saw Monty Irvin. For those of you who don't know Monty Irvin, he wound up being uh, sharing the outfield along with. Willie Mays and the New York Giants, and Monty Irvin was uh, eventually elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame. So it's not like Monty Irvin lost out into obscurity. He's, you know, he passed away a few years ago. He's in the Hall of Fame, one of the great figures in New York Giant history, and had his number retired by the San Francisco Giants. But let's just see if Monty Irvin said, sure, I'll take that then we would all celebrate Monty Irvin as one of the great figures in not just baseball history, but in American history. And Jackie Robinson 
would have been looked upon as a great football player. And also remember, and this is one of the things that I think makes the the narrative of Jackie Robinson much more interesting than the sort of the the Christ-like story that he's constantly being portrayed as and in books and in films like 42 is he was a man with who was a a fighter had a fiery temper a strong sense of right and wrong was willing to fight anyone who felt otherwise he battled with his teammate Campanella when they were teammates on the Brooklyn Dodgers he spoke out against racism right up until the end of his life. His final public appearance in the 1972 World Series, he spent a chunk of that speech on the uh, speaking over the, the, the PA system at Riverfront Stadium in Cincinnati, talking about how he wants to see a black manager in baseball. That was one of the last things he said publicly before dying several days after the World Series ended. And that fire and that fight would have been brought to the NFL. In all, in all probability. And there would have been no attempt to mute that. And with Jackie Robinson, when you look at him in a football uniform outside of the Rose Bowl, seems odd probably for people who, unlike your pal Sully, knows a little something about Jackie's life, would say, wait, I thought Jackie Robinson was a baseball player. There is a universe where he wasn't. There's an alternate reality that Monty Irvin becomes the face of integration in baseball and Jackie Robinson is a force to be reckoned with in the NFL. And so when I see him here in this football uniform, bronzed and this new statue that's outside of the Rose Bowl, I think about that alternate reality and how how life would have been different. Jackie is one of the great figures in American history, not just baseball history, but in American history altogether. His place in history would have been a lot different, but maybe not as much of the pioneer, but certainly of the strong voice that needed to be heard in those times. So I wanted to say that quickly as I see this wonderful statue out here outside of the historic Rose Bowl. I, I'm... My brother used to love to make fun of me. I could just end the sentence right there. My brother used to love to make fun of me because I love going to stadiums when they're empty. There was an opening at Candlestick Park when I was in high school. And I would go up to Candlestick. And sometimes I would bring a lunch. And I would sit in the stands. I did the same thing at Giant Stadium in East Rutherford, New Jersey when I lived in New York. And my brother could never understand it. He used to make fun of me. He said, he said, it's like if I went to a movie theater when there was no movie being played there, I just sat and I looked around. Or go to a restaurant when it's closed. And I said, no, you don't get it. That I'm getting that sensation now. Right now, the joggers running past me. There's a couple people milling about working here. But for the most part, the Rose Bowl right now is quiet. It's empty. And... I think about the times like when the Rose Bowl is played here. This place is packed. The Goodyear blimp is overhead. There's, there are helicopters. There's all sorts of you know, uh, satellite equipment everywhere. And now I get to see it quiet, almost empty. I had the same thing. You can go to Dodger Stadium sometimes when the, the gift shop's open. You can walk into the stadium. 
and it's empty. And then you compare that to the World Series when it's packed and loud and filled with people. It's sometimes neat to see the contrast, to see, oh, wait a minute, this is what it looks like, and this is what it will look like when there's no one here. And I like that sense of eeriness. Now, to me, nothing's like a baseball stadium, but here in Pasadena, the Rose Bowl will have to do. I love going to stadiums when they're empty, because then I'm there when they're packed, and you can say, yeah, I was here by myself, and now I'm seeing it shoved and packed to the gills, and I don't know, it's a nice way to spend part of your day. I want to talk to you about loyalty. Loyalty is standing by your team, even when the reward isn't there. Now, when I talk to you about fan bases and loyalty and fan bases, let me ask you a question. When you think about who are the most loyal fans out there, for years and years and years, the easiest answer to that question would be Red Sox and Cub fans. My God, they follow their team. They love their team year in and year out, despite never winning a World Series for blah, 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 blah. Well, the Red Sox have won three recently. Cubs won a couple years ago. So that element of the loyalty, that was loyalty paid off. Loyalty rewarded. Okay, fine. But are those really the most loyal fans? You think about Met fans. Met fans are incredibly loyal because they're in New York. They could pick the Yankees, but they follow the Mets. The Yankees have many more ups than downs, many more titles than down years. In fact, you could count the, you know, the, this is the first, this could be the first decade since the 1910s that the Yankees missed the World Series. And with the acquisition of Giancarlo Stanton and the fact that they almost made the World Series this year, do you know what? They may be getting closer and closer. The Mets, kind of like a full lunar eclipse, every once in a while, everything aligns. And they find themselves in the World Series. And they find themselves looking really good. And there's part of everyone thinking, oh, it's going to work out well. It's going to work out well now. It's going to be a bunch of great years of things being great. But then things start to fall apart. And before you know it, Tom Seaver's traded to the Reds. Dwight Gooden and the entire staff is falling apart. The Armando Benitez is blowing saves left and right. Called third strike and Carlos Beltran and the beautiful starting staff that they have in 2015 and 2016 falls apart for the losing record that was 2017. Being a Met fan is showing incredible loyalty. Being a Yankee fan shows loyalty. Maybe you're thinking about, oh, if you're a, a Los Angeles Dodger fan or you're a Washington National fan, you think of all these different fan bases. You think about the fan bases with tremendous history, like the Phillies, the Cardinals, the White Sox, the Tigers, the Indians. The Indians are the most loyal fans. My God, all those years they haven't won. They've come so close. They've lost two Game 7s in extra innings in the last 20 years. They, two Game 7s of the World Series went into extra innings since 1997, and the Cleveland Indians lost both of them. That's incredibly devoted fandom. But you know what? 
I'm going to say something. And it may sound bonkers. It may sound bananas. There may be other ways to describe how it sounds. But hear me out. The most loyal fans in all of baseball and the fans who I admire because of their dedication and their devotion to the team are the diehard Miami Marlins fans. They are the fan base that I look at and say, man, you're a fan. You're the real thing. And that may sound stupid or like, oh, what's the funny angle Sully's trying to take here? What's the satirical angle? None. If you're a Miami Marlins fan and devoted one, you are the most loyal fan that there is. And I'll explain to you why. I remember when I was a performer, stand-up comic in New York, the people I felt the worst for and the people I felt had it hardest were the people who were trying to be an actor. And let me tell you why. And it just ties back in with the Marlins. Because it's incredibly hard to get work as an actor. Because the competition is unbelievably fierce. And many times, you don't get the job, and it has nothing to do with your ability. It has nothing to do with your talent. It has nothing to do with your drive. It has nothing to do with your dedication. If they hired someone already to play a part, and they say, oh, this person's going to play the wife, and you're shorter than her, we don't want the husband to be shorter than the wife, or we already hired this person, you're playing his brother, this person is this race, you're not that race, so we're not going to cast you. Oh, do you want to came down to you two, and do you want, I like the way this person's nose hooks slightly to the right, because that'll look good for the, for, on camera, or whatever, that you, you'll lose jobs, and it has nothing to do with you. You could nail the audition. Some of the most talented, like some of the t- actors I, I had met during my comedy days, I met some actors who were the, some of the most extraordinary actors you will ever see. As good as anyone in the movies right now. As good as anyone on TV right now. And there's, you know, they may get a part playing a fourth cop on, on uh, Law and Order or they got a small part in this play. But they never made enough to have this be, oh, this is what I do for a living. And it has nothing to do with their talent. It has nothing to do with their craft. And the other reason I felt badly for him is he get no respect. If you tell someone you're a struggling coal miner, if you tell someone you're a struggling machinist or a struggling laborer, there's a tremendous amount of respect that goes along with it. If you say you're a struggling actor, everyone will roll their eyes. Well, geez, then get a job as a waiter. Geez. You know, there's no... If you tell someone you're a struggling actor, I bet some of you even rolled their eyes, your eyes when you heard me say that. That there's no respect that goes along with it. It has all... It has elements of toughness that you can't even fathom. You're not getting work not because of your talent or not because of your drive, not even because of your work ethic, but for things that have nothing to do with you and nobody respects you. 
I'm out of work. I'm an actor. What do you expect? Jeez, you assume that you're some big flake. Well, what if that's what your great talent is? What if that's what you're really wonderful at? That you have all of the disadvantages of being out of work and, and trying to struggle with none of the respect. And folks, that's being a Miami Marlin fan. Some of you, if I had said, if I had said to you without any context, the fans that I admire the most are Marlin fans. You, I guarantee you, 80%, 90% of you would think I was full of it, making a joke, and some of the, all of the elements that you're, you're piling in your head will come out. What Marlin fans? They're always so low in attendance. There's nobody there. There's no one at the games. What Marlin fans? They're all transplanted New Yorkers and so they cared they're probably happy that Jeter traded Giancarlo Stanton to the to the Yankees for nothing because they're Yankee fans anyway. <clears throat> what Marlin fans? You know, they don't even show up the year after they win the World Series. It's it's a terrible situation there. And what do they have to suffer about? They won one of those extra inning World Series against the Cleveland Indians. They won the World Series in 97. They won the World Series in 2003. Cry me a river if you're an Indians fan listening to that. Cry me a river if you're thinking about teams like the Pirates who haven't won since 79. With Washington fans, Nationals have never even advanced past the first round. The city of Washington hasn't hosted a World Series since 1933, hasn't won a World Series since 1924. You take a look at teams like the Rangers, who have never won the World Series. All these different things. The Marlins have two. And they have that stupid statue in left center field, and they play in that dumb stadium, and nobody's there. Ha! Don't talk to me about you know, Marlin fans, and that's why. That's why. Because they have the suffering and a unique form of suffering as a Marlin fan. That you know that if you have great players on your team, don't get used to them. They're gone. In almost every other sport, Miami is considered to be a desirable market. Not in baseball. Every once in a while, They'll raise their head and start spending money and get people's hopes up. But then they dump everyone away. But not only that. But the two championships that they've won have almost no impact on the team in terms of the goodwill in the city. Winning the World Series in 1997, their fifth year of existence was kind of a whiplash. Wait, what? They're in the World Series? We're just getting used to them being around. They went on a huge spending spree, brought in a bunch of players like Al Leiter, like Kevin Brown, like Bobby Bonilla. Gary Sheffield was still hanging around. They put together a winner for one year, like an orchid, like, like trying to breed an orchid to bloom perfectly, and then during the championship parade, broke the team up. So by 1998, the team bore no resemblance to the team that was in the World Series. There wasn't even goodwill that lasted to the next April. They won a championship, and by the next year, they had to say, ah, but none of those players are here anymore. 
It's like those players who won the championship, like Brown, like Sheffield, like all them, came to win a ring, but the team didn't win. The fans didn't win. The individual players did. Then they built up a team with a couple more homegrown players in 2003, which seemed like a more normal world championship because it wasn't slapped together as fast. But then that, by 2006, that team was totally dismantled. Ownership keeps changing. Managers change almost annually. And they have every time that they bring in a bunch of players and say, hey, look at us, we're finally spending some money, before you turn around, they're all taken down. And there was one promise that was always there. They had always been playing in a football stadium. They had always been playing in the Dolphin Stadium. Once they get their own stadium where there's a roof and they can take care of it on their own, then things will be well. And what happened there? It was a fleece job. It was a, it was a squandering at a, and basically a con job of public money to build the weirdest stadium in baseball, which I kind of like. I like that it looks weird and everything. I like that weird statue because at least it, you know, at least it looks different. And the stadium was a bust. They brought in a bunch of free agents, but by the time the season was midway through, they were trading all them away. And so Marlin fans have no other great hope for the future because they had also been saying, well, once we get new management, it must be Loria. It must be Loria. And then this new management comes in, and they've been in charge of, what, a few months? And they've already shown staggering incompetency. Yes, you had to trade Giancarlo Stanton to get the money off the books. But you could have handled it in a way where you didn't get fleeced. Does anyone in the world think they're going to spend that 200 and some odd million dollars that are off the books on players? No, they're, ta- they're taking over debt. Why get into the game if you're not there to put a winner on the field? And once again, the Marlins find themselves with an ownership that doesn't even want to be there. Wayne Huizenga tried to put it together. He built a championship team just in time to sell them, and they stripped down the team. Then the John Henry group took over, but they didn't want to be there. They weren't a bigger market team, and by the time the Red Sox came around, they would, they jumped ship. Loria just wanted to stay in the game after the Expos fiasco, and he just drove the franchise into the ground just like he drove the Expos into the ground. And everyone's like, oh, well, we got to get someone other than Loria. Anyone will be better than Loria. Think about this. Marlin fans no longer have Loria running the team, and they're in a new stadium, and it's still hopeless. They have two World Series titles, which brought a grand total of zero goodwill. And in fact, those are looked upon almost as blights to the franchise. They're considered to be jokes around baseball. Jeez, the two titles the Marlins won. Did the Marlins win it, or did the Indians choke it? Did the Marlins win it, or did Bartman interfere with a foul ball? There's no glory to the Marlins. Even with two titles, they have as many titles as the Mets. They have as many titles as the Angels and Astros combined. They have as many titles as the Phillies. They have as many titles as the Indians. With zero goodwill. None. And no hope. You can get once-in-a-generation talents. Miguel Cabrera comes up through the Marlins system. 
He's a once in a generation. He's a Hall of Famer. And he's going to go in the Hall of Fame as a Tiger. And the package they got back was a complete bust. Yeah, Andrew Miller was part of that package. But he didn't blossom until 2013 and 2014. When he was long gone from the Marlins at that point. And now they've dumped uh, Giancarlo Stanton for Starlin Castro and tickets to a Broadway show that aren't even Hamilton. And so you're a Marlin fan. You want to get attached to Giancarlo Stanton? Well, why? He's just going to be a Yankee. You want to get attached to Christian Yelich? By the time I do this podcast, he's probably going to be a Cardinal. Ozuna's probably going to be a Giant. Miami should be a destination for baseball players. You have transplanted New Yorkers. You have people from Cuba. And, surprise, surprise, you have some people actually from Miami. There are actually people who aren't retirees from New York. Some people are actually from Miami. I know some people who, guess what? They're from Miami. Just like here in L.A., I've met people who... But buckle your seatbelts are from Los Angeles. Not everyone's a transplant. And maybe, I don't know, just maybe, if you build a team from the ground up and you develop the players and some of the players stay long-term, as you see sometimes happens in some small market teams, whether it's a Joey Votto or a Joe Mauro, whomever it is, you see situations where players stick around. And you say, hey, how would you like to be a multimillionaire dodging taxes in Miami, live in Miami, and be a star in Miami? In most sports, that's great. In baseball, it's like, nah, I'd rather have Detroit. If you're a Marlins fan and you've stuck through the teardown, the disgraceful teardown of the post-97 championship, the teardown of handing Joe Girardi a, uh, a team with a payroll of $9.72 and seeing that team contend, seeing that team in 2006, 2007, 2008 with a microscopic payroll actually contend for a wild card position. If you can, and, and then see that team torn apart and the fiasco of 2012 of bringing in Ozzie Guillen bringing in Jose Reyes and Mark Burley and all of them with a promise of finally they're going to be championship. But your pal Sully bought it hook, line, and sinker. And by July, the team was completely torn apart. And to see the emergence of the first ever MVP in Marlins history, and he can't even wave to the crowd as the defending MVP because he's already a Yankee. The one moment of Marlins history that's etched in everyone's memory for being a moment for the Marlins is the death of Jose Fernandez. Think about that. This is not a new franchise anymore. It's been around since 1993. Long enough to win a couple of championships and they probably should have won a division or two along the way. The Marlins and their uh, cohorts in expansion the Rockies are the only two teams who have never won the division. But at least the Rockies have had situations where they build and 
and rebuild kind of normally. They were a playoff team last year. They were a playoff team in 2009. They were a pennant winner in 2007. There's a certain rhythm and normality to the existence of the Rockies, who, <clears throat> to be fair, have a strange handicap that they play in zero gravity. But this is not about the Rockies. This is about the Marlins. If you're a Marlin fan and you know your two greatest moments of triumph are wrapped in people's mind eternally as the failure of other franchises rather than the victory of yours. That is the, the uh, Indians lost the 1997 World Series. The Cubs lost the 2003 National League Championship Series. You think about that 2003 postseason. What are the three things that people remember? They remember Bartman. They remember Grady Little leaving in Pedro Martinez too long. They remember Pedro Martinez throwing Don Zimmer to the ground. And they remember the Aaron Boone home run. Those are the only four things that people remember about the 2003 postseason. And none of them involve directly the celebration of the world champion Marlins. If anyone remembers anything about 1997, it's the Indians collapsing in the ninth inning. And the, the shot of Edgar Renteria hitting the ball deflecting off of uh, Charles Nagy's glove, that's only included in montages of Indians' failures. So let's take a Marlins fan. If you're a Marlins fan, A, your victories aren't even counted as victories, B, your existence is questioned. Think about that. Your very existence is questioned. If I said Marlin fans, what Marlin fans? It's like I'm talking about a goddamn Sasquatch. How many Marlins fans do you know? Probably not many. And what kind of unity do they have? There are a lot of Marlins bars in New York for transplanted Marlins fans. You're walking down the street. I walk down the street, and I have a Red Sox cap on. I'll get a couple, hey, Red Sox, go Red Sox. If you walk down the street with a Cleveland hat on, go Tribe, I bet, someone will say. Because someone, oh, I'm from, uh, I'm from northern Ohio. I'm a big Indians fan. Yeah, go Tribe. This is the year. If you're a Pittsburgh Pirate fan... You see someone from Pittsburgh, they'll say, go Steelers. If you're a Marlins fan, how often do people bump into other Marlins fans? And how often do people even say, oh man, I feel badly for you? They don't. They, if they acknowledge your existence, they'll say, ah, but you won a couple World Series. It's not like you're a long-suffering Marlin fan. Hell, you won a World Series, what, uh, 15 years ago. It's really not that long ago. What about these other teams that have never won? And yeah, you can make the point that uh, a team like the Padres have fans that are undeniably loyal. And partly because no one will ever give them credit for the long-suffering. But you, you can't add long-suffering to Marlin fandom, except that you can. Except that their championships are bittersweet. 
And you say, who's the greatest Marlin of all time? Is it Stanton? Probably is. And he's going to be remembered as a Yankee. Is it Cabrera? Probably is. But he's going to be remembered as a Tiger. Who's the greatest postseason hero in Marlins history? Uh, probably Moises Alou. Or maybe Yvonne Rodriguez. And what do those two have in common? Each of them spent one year with the Marlins. Moises Alou was there for one year. Pudge Rodriguez was there for one year. Had great highlights. Tagging out. Uh, yeah, I had to walk off two-run bottom of the 10th single to win game four against the Giants. Held on to the throw at home. Getting, uh, uh, what's his name, J.T. Snow out to win the final game of the division series. Started the huge rally and was the MVP of the National League Championship Series against the Cubs and got big hits against the Yankees in the World Series. Does anyone remember that? I do. He does. And probably a do- few diehard Marlin fans do. But for most people, Padre Rodriguez, he's a Ranger or maybe a Tiger. He had his little cameo in Miami. So now Derek Jeter comes in, whose name is already associated with another franchise, cleaned house of all the people like Jeff Conine and Tony Perez, and now what we're stuck with. The Marlins are going to be terrible. Terrible! For the next few years. The one thing Marlin fans could possibly cling to was by some fate, circumstance, hook, crook, they wound up winning a World Series this decade. They could say, hey, we've won a World Series each of the last three decades. That's not going to happen. Whether or not you think this decade is going to end in 2019 or 2020, it's going to end in 2019. If you think that this decade's in 2020, you're weird. But it doesn't matter. You're not going to hear the words, ladies and gentlemen, you're 2019 world champion Miami Marlins. You're 2020 world champion Miami Marlins. It's not going to happen. They're going to have to do a major buildup. And then what? And then what? It's more of the same. Whether it's Hyzenga, whether it's Henry, whether it's Laurier, whether it's the Jeter group. doesn't matter. You have an ownership that's constantly indifferent to the team. You have a league that just lets the team be broken down to the ground every few years. And the hopes of new management and new stadium have resulted in exactly bupkis. And somewhere out there, there's a fan, puts on their hat. Maybe it's with the M, maybe it's with the F. And they put on their jersey and they show up to Marlins Park and they cheer their team on. They cry when they see the clips of Jose Fernandez. They get goosebumps when they think of that wide strike zone that Levon Hernandez had on the Braves. They have on running on a loop that ground ball that was flipped to Edgar Renteria that eliminated the Braves in 1997. Devon White's grand slam against the Giants in that year's postseason. All the big hits against the Indians. And finally that rally in the ninth inning. And then bases loaded, Edgar Renteria up the middle, in comes Conine. And then thinking about 03, the Pudge single, holding on to the throw home. All the big hits that are forgotten because they're placed not in the context of a Marlins victory, but in the Cubs' loss. They don't think about Bartman. 
They think about Derek Lee's double. They think about Mike Mordecai clearing the bases. I bet you forgot about that. I bet you forgot about the huge hits that they got in Game 7 when the Cubs took a lead in Game 7 and the Marlins came storming back. I bet you forgot about Alex Gonzalez's walk-off home run or the big hits they got off of the Yankees left and right. And Josh Beckett, another postseason hero who's associated with the Red Sox over the Marlins, tagging out Jorge Posada in what should have been one of the greatest David versus Goliath stories of all time, the low-budget, no-name Marlins with an ancient manager in Jack McKeon taking on the behemoth of the Yankees in 2003. Instead, that's simply remembered as the year that Pedro was left in too long, Aaron Boone homered, and Bartman tried to catch a foul ball. And you wipe your tears thinking about what could have been. And you sit down, and you look out at the field, and you see that the place isn't full. But you're sitting there, and you think, okay, Marlins, maybe this is the year. And that's the fan with the most dedication. That's the fan with the greatest sense of loyalty. Because there seems to be no reward. There seems to be no reward for that. There's reward and romance for rooting for a team that loses all the time, that has great tradition. There's no romance to that in Miami. Vindictive fans who are just wave their hands and dismiss the two titles and say there aren't even any fans there. That one fan said, there, I said, what about me? Aren't I here? You know, I, I, I often think about, there was a, a teacher that I had, and there was like one, it must have been sixth or seventh grade, and a bunch of the kids in my class cut class that day. And there should have been like 20, 30 kids, or 25 kids in the class, and there were really only around 12 like, it was only half full. Like, half the class was, was cutting out. And I remember the teacher was rip shit. Sorry, Ray. But the teacher was rip shit that so many kids were cutting class that day. And she got mad at us. And she took it out on us. And I remember thinking, why are you mad at us? We're the ones who are here. Shouldn't you be praising us? We're not the ones who cut. And in a way, that's Marlin fandom. We should be praising them. If you show up to Marlins Park, and you want, and they may only draw about 12,000 a game. But think about that. If they draw like only 12,000 a game, let's say they only draw about a, a million five for the year. Well, think about that. Think about those 11,000, 12,000 at the game. How much did those people love their Marlins? That's 12,000 people sitting down watching a game. Those are the most dedicated fans in the world. How much dedication does it take to show up to Fenway Park or Yankee Stadium? Seriously. How much dedication does it show to be one of the millions showing up to Dodger Stadium or to St. Louis? with all the great history and tradition and the generations backing up. Yeah, I rooted for this player. Oh, I want to be part of that. 
I know what that's like. If you're a Red Sox fan, you want to be part of that history. You know about Ted Williams and Bobby Doerr and Carl Yastrzemski and Jim Rice and all those people of the past. And you want to look at the Mookie Betts and the Andrew Benatendis and see where they fit in that mosaic. You want to see where Judge and Bird and Sanchez and now Stanton all fit in Yankee history now. And will they f- find their place in it? And the Cardinals and all these other ones. If you're a Marlin fan, what are you tapping into? I tell you what you're tapping into. You're tapping into a love of your team. And there is no fan base in the world with greater dedication than the Miami Marlins. I think it was a little windier here than I thought, so if the wind hit the mic, I do apologize. Go to SullyBaseball.com, like me on Facebook, or on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Twitter, Stitcher, Instagram, I'm everywhere. The music is by Ted Thacker and Patrick Kaliski. Giving props to Miami Marlin fans, because they deserve it. This has been the Sully Baseball Podcast for the 12th day of December 2017. I'm yours, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully.